Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And this week we're taking a look at an August 27th broadcast from On The Media, which if you're not familiar with the program, is a popular syndicated radio show from New York City's WNYC. If you hear some clanking in the background, that's my dog. He does not want me to close the door. He will keep pawing at it if I do. But anyway, that WNYC podcast had a segment that was called Constitutionally Speaking, and it questioned some of the values undergirding free speech in our modern world. But in doing so, they did not interview a single defender of free speech. Instead, they interviewed Andrew Morantz, who is the author of the 2019 article, Free Speech is Killing Us, P.E. Moskowitz, who was the author of The Case Against Free Speech, and Susan Banesh. She is the director of the Dangerous Speech Project. They also interviewed John Powell, who's a Berkeley professor, very critical of John Stuart Mill's free speech arguments in his seminal 1859 book on liberty. So the whole segment is framed as a challenge to so-called free speech absolutism, which, speaking for myself here, I don't know actually exists in the real world, but it does make for a convenient scapegoat for all of us on and on the media's perceived problems with free speech. Problems for which actually they can't conjure up any good solutions and therefore end up right back where the so-called free speech absolutists stand. Journalist and author Matt Taibbi wrote a brief response to the on the media segment, which he called absurd, bizarre, and shockingly dishonest. So on today's episode, we're going to correct the record. And we're going to respond to the arguments in the On the Media segment. And to do so, we are joined by Taibi himself, as well as former ACLU president and New York Law School professor Nadine Strawson and Carleton College history professor Amna Khalid. Matt, Nadine, Amna, welcome onto the show. Great to be here. Nadine, this was your idea, right? You read Matt's article, got incensed at it. Matt was probably incensed when he started writing the article. So you must be just jonesing for a fight here. Well, the answer to speech you disagree with is more speech, right? (laughs) And I'm sure that I have been accused of being a free speech absolutist. So I am here to agree with you, Nico, that there is no such thing as defined by Morantz and other participants in the On the Media show. They caricatured somebody who supposedly elevates free speech and only free speech above all other values, supposedly maintaining that speech may never be limited, supposedly maintaining that speech does no harm at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, those of us who strongly defend free speech do so precisely because we understand and respect its great power, power to do enormous good as well as enormous harm. What we are afraid of is the power of government or tech giants, other powerful entities to decide which speech should be protected and which should not. 
Matt, it, in reading your article, it sounded like you have a bone to pick with NPR in general. Is that true? You didn't like their music choices, the harpsichord playing at the beginning of the episode? <laughs> I, th- I thought that was a little bit of a low blow. I mean, it's it's a clever trick by the producer. I think what they were trying to do was show how antiquated uh, John Stuart Mill's arguments were. But no, I, I want to agree with, first of all, with, with Nadine. Um, there's no such thing as a free speech absolutist and no practicing journalist, first of all, just speaking from people from my profession, um, is one. Uh, in, in fact, that's one of the reasons why most of the people who I know in this job who are so passionate about free speech um, feel that way is because we have always had to work under a whole variety of restrictions uh, and guidelines about speech, uh, most of them falling under the general rubric of libel law. Uh, but there's also laws like incitement that we have to worry about. Every single article that, you know, if, if you read a major feature article, most of what you're doing for days beforehand is working through all of those restrictions. Did I say something false about somebody? Did I defame somebody? Did I commit libel per se? Did I, did I harm somebody's profession? There's a whole galaxy of stuff that we have to work through, and we're happy to do it because the public has confidence in us if they know that we're adhering in all these rules. This idea that we're free speech absolutists is something that's been invented by by people who are against the who, who want to regulate speech in a way that I think is new uh, and and very repressive, and so they're mischaracterizing uh, the positions of people uh, like all of us. The way we're going to do this episode is I've got 11 clips from the episode queued up here. So we're going to respond to them point by point. I'm going to let, I'm going to pitch it off to one of you. If one of you wants to say a few words, we can have the others chime in afterwards. So let's listen to, as Matt said, NPR mischaracterize free speech advocates. Whenever you write about free speech, obviously the free speech absolutists are going to come out of the woodwork. And there are a lot of absolutists on the Internet. So I guess that's us, right? We're coming out of the woodwork. Amna, are you a free speech absolutist? Absolutely not. Um, I'm a big proponent of free speech. I think actually one of the problems I have is that so many of these conversations about the value of free speech take place within the American context when there is so much to learn from what is happening outside the U.S., which might actually help flesh out what the benefits of free speech are um, within the U.S. and beyond. And many of these conversations portray free speech as the right for everyone to speak everywhere. That is not the case. The First Amendment is very clear. Um, Nadine, of course, can talk about this far better than I can, but this is about controlling the speech of, or the control of the state over speech. Um, So I wouldn't characterize myself as a free speech absolutist. It's a straw man argument, really. But I do think um, that I am a proponent of free speech. And if I can chime in, taking Amna's invitation to just, you know, in a thumbnail, sum up what not only U.S. free speech law holds, but also international free speech principles, which are widely supported uh, by countries around the world, that government may restrict speech 
if but only if it can satisfy an appropriately heavy burden of proof. If it can show that the particular restriction is necessary and the least speech restrictive alternative in order to promote some countervailing goal of compelling importance, whether that goal be public safety, for example, or individual safety. And when you think about it, that just makes common sense. Of course, most of us would be willing to trade off free speech for, you know, public safety or even national security, but it's a fool's choice to give up free speech if we're not gaining safety in return. Or worse yet, as is often the case, if the censorship, no matter how well intended, does more harm than good, which is typically the case. Well, is what they're getting at here essentially that we have a very expansive view of the First Amendment or free speech principles writ large, a view that wasn't shared by the founders or a view that up until the last half century didn't really exist in American law either. And we're continuing to whittle away at previous speech restrictions in order to get to this utopia where there are no free speech restrictions. Or is that you know, given being too charitable to their argument. If I could chime in there, I, I think what a lot of this criticism comes from is anxiety about what the new speech environment on the internet uh, means. Because before the internet, again, most of what we saw on television or in the newspapers had, was pretty rigorously fact-checked. Um, had already gone through some kind of legal review in, in many cases, although that wasn't true with live TV. But by tradition, you tended to avoid uh, anything that was going to ins- invite a lawsuit. That's not true on the Internet. I mean, the Internet is and has been much more of a free-for-all than that previous media environment. And I think there are people who are struggling over what to do about that. But in in so doing... They're mischaracterizing what free speech is and always has been and why we value it. Um, They're rewriting history to sort of suggest that it was never valuable uh, and then it's not worth protecting now. And that's not the case. The case is we have a new technological challenge. Yeah. And one of the things that they're doing in, in criticizing the current free speech environment is they're dismissing the slippery slope argument that a lot of free speech advocates make, which is essentially bringing up the consequences of new laws regulating speech. And, and this is the clip that I want to turn to next. So I'll play it here. I mean, whenever speech is restricted in any way, the first thing you hear from a free speech absolutist is a slippery slope argument. If you restrain Nazis from speaking in Charlottesville, how do we defend against a slippery slope into more and more and more government restrictions? I'm fine with that slippery slope argument. I just don't know why. If you're worried about the slippery slope that comes from restricting Nazis speech, why aren't you worried about the slippery slope that comes from letting Nazis speak? Nadine, I'll hand this off to you as the former president of the ACLU. I think they're making a uh, a uh, point of bringing up the Skokie case from the late 1970s. In which the ACLU proudly defended freedom of speech, even for, and here I'm paraphrasing Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, even for the thought that we hate, that is directly antithetical to our own civil liberties values. Why? not because of a slippery slope, but because the very same principle 
and argument that is asserted to justify in an attempt to justify suppressing the Nazis is what led to suppressing Martin Luther King and civil rights demonstrators and anti-Nazi pro-civil rights crusaders, namely the fact that the majority of the particular community where the speech is taking place abhors the idea or the viewpoint. That's exactly what happened, not only throughout the South, but as the ACLU pointed out in our brief in the Skokie case itself, by the way, Skokie is in Illinois, just less than a decade earlier in Cicero, Illinois, in another part of the state, the ACLU relied on the very same so-called viewpoint neutrality principle to defend the speech of Martin Luther King, whose viewpoints were deemed to be dangerous and offensive and insulting to the majority of the residents in Cicero, Illinois. So that's not even a, a slope. It's a, it's, it's a level playing field, except it's an unequal, unequal level playing field. Um, those who support minority viewpoints, who are challenging the government, who are advocating for rights for people who are disempowered, disenfranchised, always bear the brunt of censorship. And that was certainly true for the civil rights movement and all other human rights movements to this day. So Amna, is it not the case that there is some slope to letting the Nazis speak, like some risk to letting them speak? It's just it's not as slippery as allowing for speech restrictions, to Nadine's point? Right. So here is my problem with this argument, in addition to what Nadine has said, which is it's not that we don't recognize that there may be consequences of certain kind of speech. There is no speech that doesn't have consequences. That is well known. It's what the alternative could be. Right. So in this case, if we stop Nazis from speaking, then that also means that we will stop people like Martin Luther King from speaking. Coming from a country that has had a series of dictatorship, where we have speech laws both on political and religious counts, it is absolutely imperative if you want to protect the rights of minorities and of those who do not believe in the reigning orthodoxy, you have to have their rights protected by protecting free speech. So it's not about a slippery slope of what will happen. It's about what will we recognize that things can happen when there is free speech, but also what will happen once that speech is quelled is that those kinds of things are likely to go underground and fester in other ways. And in addition to that, the principle of it is if you suppress that kind of speech, you're also going to suppress the speech of minorities who do not agree with the dominant discourse. Yeah. The, I mean, the tricky thing with this on the media segment is that they make this criticism, but they proffer no solutions. Like it's, it's almost as if they're, if they're suggesting that there is some sort of speech restriction that should be in place to which we would argue no slippery slope, slippery slope, but that's never actually presented. So you can't really, you can't really falsify the claim, right? So the, the, one of the things that they do, and it's a very NPR way of doing it, is they frame this around a, a philosopher who I had never heard of before. He was a very obscure philosopher, or maybe very prominent in the philosophy world, but I'm just a lowly free speech advocate. What do I know? Uh, who gave a speech at Harvard at some point on what's called the contingency model. And I'm, I'm quoting from the NPR synopsis of the episode here. Back in the 1980s, analytic philosopher Richard Rorty described the concept of contingency, which argues that there's no predetermined arc to our system 
and processes. The arc, Rorty said, is made by people. So the idea that our society will move ever more towards enlightenment and rationality, question mark, according to Rorty, that idea is flawed because it's people who ultimately determine what will become of our ideas and our institutions. And this is Andrew Morantz talking about that philosopher. The correct model is a contingent model. The way free speech plays into that is that if you just take care of making sure that the government doesn't get in people's way and that it lets them say whatever they want, you can't just sit back and automatically wait for the arc of history to carry you to where you want to go. You can't adhere to the notion that it can't happen here. Right. Talk about myths of American identity. One of the core parts of that is that phrase, it can't happen here, the it referring to fascism, totalitarianism. So, uh, Matt, maybe you can help me here. Uh, One of the things that I'm having a hard time understanding is they argue that you can't just sit back and wait for the arc of history to bend toward justice. So you have to do something about it. You have to, I'm assuming, organize and speak out for the direction you want the country to go to. Is, that seems like an argument for free speech to me, not against it. But maybe I'm just misinterpreting the philosophy. Again, I'm just a lowly free speech advocate. Yeah. First of, first of all, I'm, I'm not an expert on Rory, uh, but from what I understand, I think he actually would have deeply objected to a, a lot of the characterizations in, in this episode. Um, but yeah, th- what they're essentially saying is free speech is great and all, but, but we can't just uh, use... We can't afford the luxury of just waiting uh, for the marketplace of ideas to establish a utopia of perfect justice or whatever it is thereafter. We have to, we now have to act more aggressively uh, and more affirmatively in making sure that the things that we want to happen in society happen. And this is not, this is a very popular belief uh, among younger people and, and people that I talk to coming out of college. Uh, but I think they're talking about two different things at once. And also uh, this idea of that in creating a more just and more perfect, uh, perfect society, we have to abandon free speech. It seems like a complete contradiction in terms like, like the, the, the cure is worse than the, the, the disease in this case. It's very strange to me, and I, I can see, Nadine, that you have a lot of thoughts in this matter, so I want to pass to you, but th- that, that segment was particularly p- uh, troubling to me, for sure. Yeah, I mean, ironically, that the way that we fight fascism is by instituting censorship, which is the essence and prerequisite for fascism. I don't get it. And also this other straw person argument that supposedly those of us who advocate counter speech as a very important response and strategy for promoting values of justice, that somehow we're saying speech is enough. We shouldn't do anything else. It's as if the ACLU did nothing but defend free speech and did not uh, lobby for anti-discrimination laws, did not lobby uh, for laws against hate crime or discriminatory violence. So it's really ridiculous to suggest that uh, by defending free speech, you're suddenly abdicating any responsibility for any other activism for other tools to advance equality, justice, and human rights. 
Can I just come in over here? I, I agree with everything that's been said. And I think I'm just going to pick up on something that Matt was saying, which is that there is a conflation happening and a slippage happening over here. Insofar as their critique of the you know, view of history as progress, which we as historians call the Whiggish view of history, yes, I critique that too. There is no predetermined view towards progress. There is an arrogance in that kind of view. The ways, ways in which American exceptionalism has manifested in creating this understanding that things can never happen in the US, all of that I agree with. Where I fail to see the connection is, how is free speech part of that problem, right? Like, how is free speech proposing that we believe in a progress-oriented view of uh, time and history? And the other problem with this view is that the idea is that any kind of speech has this kind of infective power, right? Like it's going to infect you. There is contagion. The mere saying of words is going to change the course of history. And therefore we need to contain it. Whereas I would argue, well, one set of words is said, and then you have the opposing argument. And then people are thinking human agents who can weigh them and they will weigh them either for good or for bad, we can't predetermine that. But the fact of the matter is that speech in its own right is not the problem. It can be countered with more speech. It, it just seems like the, the sort of program, or at least the leeway that they're looking to give to the government here is essentially the leeway that tyrannical governments, such as China, for example, uh, goes about its work. You know, you don't like religious liberty exercised by the Uyghurs, just throw them into camps or you don't like, uh, you know, protests against the new rule in, in Hong Kong, just eliminate the protests and jail all the dissenters. You know, all this is done and it's much ex more extreme than anything being, uh, proposed here in the United States, but all of it's being done under the same, uh, the same umbrella, the umbrella of, uh, you know, the need for public order, the need, uh, for peace and t tranquility. But I did just bring up the tyranny argument right there. So I'm going to turn to the next clip, which seeks to, uh, belittle that, that argument. Just before a change in how we think about or regulate speech, right up until the moment that happens, we take for granted that it can't possibly change. No new restrictions could possibly come into effect. That would be tyranny. That would be North Korea. And then right after it changes, we kind of get used to it. The, yeah, I mean, the, the question I had, Nadine, maybe you can speak to this because you've been doing this work for quite some time and you've been on the forefront of the legal challenges to... Uh, to, to free speech. Um, you know, the last hundred years has essentially been an opening up of free speech rights in, in America, not the opposite, although there have been proposals. I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious what proposals they're talking about. I know they bring up, um, you know, workplace discrimination, for example, sexual harassment laws, but, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if you could lend any context, Nadine. Well, you, the devil is in the details. United States law, consistent with universal, internationally accepted human rights principles, do allow restrictions if you can show in a particular situation that the restriction is actually necessary and warranted. Uh, Matt may, gave us um, one example, which is very common, and that is a certain subcategory of false speech which is injures somebody's reputation and which is either knowingly or recklessly false if it's a matter about uh, pub public concern, that constitutes punishable defamation. But if we go beyond that 
and, and in fact return to the bad old days before the landmark 1964 decision of New York Times versus Sullivan. So any false statement, even if it was about a matter of public concern, even if it was negligent, even if it was trivial, could result in ruinous damages. That was a deliberate strategy that was used by Southern officials to try to bankrupt not only civil rights leaders and civil rights organizations, but also the national media that were covering them. And without that national media attention, we would not have been able or likely would not have been able to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the devil really is in the details. You have to look at each proposed regulation on its merits. And again, this goes back to that initial sin of using that categorical term absolutist. No, we support certain free speech restrictions, but we do not support all free speech restrictions, just as we do not oppose all free speech restrictions. Matt, is what they're really arguing against here, in a certain sense, just the civil libertarian instinct, you know, to really worry about the unintended consequences of restrictions or laws that limit our, limit our liberty? Yeah, I think they argue against that on multiple grounds, but a very popular argument that's that you see made all the time on social media and from people like this, and this goes back to the whole issue of the arc of history, too, is just this... This idea that the marketplace of ideas doesn't work, and that if you just uh, let everybody uh, say whatever they want, uh, that the best arguments don't win, don't actually win. And this is an argument that became very popular after Donald Trump won the election. Like, see what happens if you if you just let everybody talk. Like, this is the result of of uh, of that kind of discourse. I happen to disagree. I happen to think better better arguments actually win over time and, um, and that the worst arguments actually do lose over time. Uh, but that's not even the point. Uh, it's not about the effectiveness of the speech. It's about the choices that we make. Do we want, uh, do we want to have a society that doesn't have speech freedoms? Um, do we want that versus how much are we worried about um, other kinds of threats that might emanate from free speech, and this is why we've we've had these fiercely fought battles over free speech over the last centuries uh, that have always resulted, or that, that typically have resulted in uh, judges trying to err on the side of protecting as many freedoms as they can, because it's so important to our conception of what our society is all about. This idea of of, of being able to express ourselves. Um, that is preferable to the alternative. And the alternative is that somebody would have to regulate the speech. And that's the problem is once, once we get into who's doing that regulating, that, that's where we get to the scary part. And, and, and they don't address any of that. They, they, all they want to do is, is, is in a very narrow way say, oh, this libertarian hands-off approach to, to speech regulation doesn't work. And it's so much more complicated than that. I'm not, Matt made a couple allusions to history there as a history professor, as a resident history professor on this <laughs> podcast. I mean, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, do you agree that the marketplace of ideas while in the short term might find some deficiencies in the long term, it, it can win out. 
So here I might differ with Matt a little bit in that it really depends on the time frame you're going to put on that. And, you know, I, I'm comfortable with bad ideas winning out. Um, I, I don't think, I don't have this faith that always the best ideas will win out. But I really think it is... Um, more often than not, we have seen that it, free speech has been absolutely central to the kinds of gains for justice made for minorities. And that's the piece that I really want to stick with. It's not so much the idea of what will eventually happen, but historically, if you cast your eyes back, you see that every time there has been a gain for minority rights, it's come because there has been a space for those people to speak up. And every time you've shut that down, it's put, you know, that kind of movement towards justice years behind. Um, we again, I would say, you know, there is the historical context, and I don't need to go very far within the U.S. and the civil rights itself is the biggest example, I think. But even within, like, in our current moment, if you cast your eyes beyond the pond and look at the rest of the world, you will see so many examples of how limitations on free speech are a way of shutting down the rights of minorities. I mean, we're sitting in a moment, this to me is, there's such a lot of cognitive dissonance because we're talking about, here we are wondering, you know, scratching our heads in the US, like, oh, is free speech good or not? While simultaneously the Taliban are taking over Afghanistan. And it's such a disconnect to my mind that they're one of the biggest critiques of uh, regimes like that is that they limit people's freedoms by limiting their speech fundamentally. The entire supposed rhetoric for going to war was, you know, to to stand for liberty, to be for the rights of those who are minorities, like women who don't get their rights. And one of the fundamental ways in which those rights are constrained is by limiting their speech and limiting their access to the public square. So to my mind, I'm just really honestly confused by this episode. And I'm wondering, was this produced in a different time period when we weren't facing this kind of situation, when it's rich large and you don't have to do very much more than perhaps turn NPR on itself and listen to what's happening in the world? And listen to what's happening in the United States, because when we had all the Black Lives Matter protests and other social justice protests, the ACLU had, and other organizations, free speech organizations and, and human rights organizations were forced to bring lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit because police and other government officials were um, stifling a peaceful protests, right? And also silencing and punishing and even arresting journalists who were seeking to merely cover the protests or uh, legal observers who were trying to protect the demonstrators' rights. So we don't have to look as far as Afghanistan, sadly. Now, fortunately, we've been able to win those lawsuits because fortunately, the Supreme Court has a robust but not absolute view of free speech. It crosses partisan lines, right? Uh, it's one of the f few issues in which the Supreme Court uh, can find agreement. Now, will the court always be that way? You know, the court is a consequence of, you know, will change hands and one day the young people uh, of today will be on that court. So so we'll see the direction it's going. Amna, did you want to say something? I saw a hand almost. No, I just wanted there. to say it really goes down to the, you know, who's going to make the judgment of which speech is allowed and which isn't. And frankly, like even the people with, who might claim to have the most moral sound judgment on these issues are not infallible. And that is the issue over here is that you cannot entrust, especially the state, to make those kinds of choices because the state will always make the choices that support its presence, that support its its power. And 
for that reason, I'm I'm also a little amazed that these are people who usually are all for the rights of the people. And over here, there is an argument that is being made, which is laying the base for more authoritarianism. So again, there is that disconnect between what their intentions are, and I'll give them the benefit of their, of the doubt over there, but actually what they're saying, it's not thought through what the implications of what they're saying are. But if I can be devil's advocate here, I want to return to a point that Nico mentioned at the beginning, which is when you listen carefully, again, I mean, it's imp- you, it's easy to overlook the first time because you heard this drumbeat of anti-free speech. But then it's not I a drumbeat, it's a, it's, a, it's a harpsichord. Right. Sorry. A harpsichord beat. Um, But then I listened very carefully again, and I heard every single person who was interviewed expressly said, I am not advocating censorship. Andrew Morantz said that. P.E. Moskowitz, despite the title of his book, said that. Susan Benish said that and, and defended the maligned so-called Brandenburg test. So you had to read very carefully through this avalanche of anti-free speech rhetoric to understand that they weren't coming up with a better solution. Or, or uh, expressing it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that was, the, that was part of the strategy of, of this show is that there was an implied. There, there were some implied solutions that they didn't want to talk about because that would have given specifics that could be responded to, and um, that didn't happen. So, yeah, uh, it, it, Amna, to your to your point about like this not being well thought out. You know what speech restrictions look like in practice, and who you would trust to actually make the decisions as to which speech gets censored and which doesn't. Which, as Bob Corn Revere, the great lawyer who often appears on the show, would almost necessarily entail like the development of some ministry of truth, which <laughs> we don't want. But I think, I think Christopher Hitchens made the point best, and at least the one that resonated with me the most. Who's going to decide? To whom do you award the right to decide which speech is harmful, or who is the harmful speaker? Or to determine in advance what are the harmful consequences going to be that we know enough about in advance to prevent? To whom would you give this job? To whom are you going to award the task of being the censor? And uh, I think that's one of the most, if not the most compelling arguments for free speech that I've ever ever heard, because it actually puts the question to the listener to determine and to actually work through that problem there that you uh, identified on as to how this would actually work in practice. But we've referenced a couple of times within this show, the balancing of different different rights. And that comes up actually a little bit in the NPR episode. So I want to play a clip on that front. I think speech can cause individual harm and it can cause societal harm. And so, of course, we need to take speech rights into account, but we need to take other things into account, too. You saw heard some of the harpsichord music there at the end. Uh, Matt, I mean, we, we've kind of beat a dead horse on this point, but the free speech jurisprudence and just free speech values does anticipate the harms out you know, outside of speech, right? When we when we look at uh, incitement to imminent lawless action, for example, or defamation, I mean, those are balancing very carefully other harms, but in almost every case, to the extent the government introduces speech restrictions, they need to be very narrowly tailored to meet that significant government interest. Right, and, and it's not like they're, 
setting those laws without knowing exactly what those da- damages could be. That's the whole point of all of these cases is that, is that these, these are judges who are, who are painfully aware of, of the negative consequences of speech. And they're wrestling with that when they make these decisions. But again, the, the, the thing that they're leaving out is the, is the flip side is, is the consequence. Uh, if we, if we have some kind of a ministry of truth, if we have some kind of a higher authority, because you would need to, uh, there, there, were, there would need to be some kind of a body that would be responsible for dealing with all this. Um, you know, who, who would those people be? Um, would there be any oversight uh, of those people? How transparent would that process be? Uh, would it be more harmful than the harm that we're dealing with in this present instance? That's what that's what these justices are weighing, and they're leaving out that complete other side of the argument when they when they talk about this, which is so frustrating, and that's why I called it dishonest because it's you know they know exactly what the actual issue is here, but they're only presenting this this one side of it, and it's it's very very frustrating. And there's there's another piece of the analysis that's also uh, equally frustrating in its omission. Well, two actually, Matt. One. Uh, Amna alluded to, which is, is the censorship actually going to eliminate the speech? You know, the answer throughout history and around the world is no, it drives it underground where it becomes more dangerous. It's harder to respond to. And the other part of the analysis is what else could we do to address the underlying problem that might be even more effective than censorship, such as education or anti-discrimination laws or teaching people critical media skills to deal with disinformation and so forth. Too often, censorship is this politically uh, cheap, quick fix. You don't have to raise any taxes to impose a censorship law, right, that gives politicians and others this sense of satisfaction that we're doing something, uh, but they're actually not dealing with the actual underlying problems. For example, discriminatory attitudes or hateful, violent, discriminatory conduct. If I could just jump in there really yeah. quickly, because there's something that's very specific to, to the media business that's very, that, that is uh, perfectly apropos to Nadine, what you were just talking about. Often it's there's it's now argued, oh, we need censorship because there's so much fake news out there um, and people believe it and they're not believing the the us. trusted main the us, the trusted mainstream media. Well, the flaw in that argument is there's something you can do about that loss of trust. That loss of trust didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because you continually made mistakes. You continually did things like report on the non-existent WMDs in Iraq that you know led millions of people to to not be sure that you're telling the truth uh, when they turn on those news programs. So again, they're jumping to well, let's censor rather than let's fix the problem with our own business, which is just one of a, a hundred things I, I think, Nadine, uh, of that sort that you're talking about. And it's not just problems with the business of journalism, which you're quite right to point out. It's also where the failings are as a society, as an educator, I'm talking about the school systems. Why are people so willing to believe disinformation is another issue. Why are people unable to critically analyze what is sound information and what might be more questionable? That speaks to a wider problem in our society of how information is being consumed or how uncritically information is being consumed. So I think there are many, many ways in which 
which this problem can be fixed and addressed. And this is the most immediate knee-jerk response. Let's just censor the speech. I, we are all putting our money where our mouth is, right? Because we heard this NPR broadcast an hour long that was filled with misinformation and disinformation. And we are not advocating censorship. We are responding to it. <laughs> to be clear, they weren't, they weren't advocating censorship either. They were just raising questions, of course. But I want to turn, I want to turn next uh, to an, a, a clip that kind of raises some questions I've been increasingly hearing from those critical of uh, modern free speech values. So let's listen. I mean, in the early 1900s, two hardcore union supporter brothers conspired to try to blow up the LA Times, which was a virulently anti-union newspaper. They didn't want to hurt anyone. The point was to call attention to the anti-union behavior of the paper. They ended up uh, hurting people. They ended up getting caught. And the ACLU defended them. You know, they were saying, well, we don't condone blowing things up, but you have to agree that <laughs> it makes sense that people are this angry because no one is listening to them. Does someone who works 60 hours a week and therefore has no time to attend that council meeting where you could exercise your free speech, do they have a right to free speech? Technically, they do. But in reality, in materialist reality, they do not. So that's the argument I've been hearing more often lately. Let's put the ACLU, LA Times uh, issue aside, because Nadine, I asked you before the show, were you familiar with this case when the ACLU represented some pro-union bombers of the LA Times? You said you weren't familiar with it. I asked Ira Glasser uh, if he was familiar with this case. He said he was not, and he was on a lot of television appearances in the 70s and 80s where a lot of people were digging up old stuff about the ACLU to criticize them about. He wasn't familiar with it. I, I, I bet PE, to the extent that they are right about that case existing, uh, is wrong about what the ACLU represented those bombers for. It might have been that represented their criminal trial or something. I don't know that they would argue that the bombing uh, was a free speech protection. But in any case, the, the point being made in that segment is essentially that, okay, we have the right to free speech, right? But not everyone has the equal right to it. It presumes some sort of level playing field, but you don't have a level playing field because the Murdoch family, the owners of News Corp, have a greater right to free speech than Joe the plumber on the corner, for example. This is an argument I'm increasingly hearing. I don't know what it essentially means, uh, like what the downstream consequences of that or the policy position might be to rectify that. But you know, Amna, have you been hearing this argument or is, am I alone in this? I actually have heard it a lot and I've heard it from students. So it is interesting that this is a new way of thinking, if you will. Yeah. And I, I, I will just say here, I, I pulled this up because I, re, I recalled that David Cole, who's the uh, legal director at the ACLU, write a, wrote a great op-ed back in 2017 responding to the Charlottesville stuff in which he took on this argument. He said, virtually all rights, speech included, are enjoyed unequally and can reinforce inequality. The right to property most obviously protects the billionaire more than it does the poor. Homeowners have greater privacy rights than apartment dwellers who in turn have more privacy than the homeless. 
The fundamental right to choose how to educate one's children means little to parents who cannot afford private schools and contributes to the resilience of segregated schools and the reproduction of privilege. Criminal defendants' rights are enjoyed much more robustly by those who can afford to hire an expensive lawyer than by those dependent on the meager resources that states dedicate to the defense of the indigent, thereby contributing to the endemic disparities that plague our criminal justice system. Matt, I think this gets to the point that you were making. It's like, it's, it's as if they're arguing for some sort of blue state utopia, right? Well, that- the solution is not that we, oh, the criminal you know, defendants' rights are mo- more greatly enjoyed by uh, people who have resources. So let's get rid of those rights. No, the logical <laughs> consequence is we work very hard, as FIRE certainly does, as the ACLU certainly does, uh, to make do everything to equalize the actual enjoyment and exercise of all rights, including freedom of speech by all people uh, in a number of ways. Number one, through education and information, because you can't exercise your rights if you're unaware of them, um, by providing free legal services without charge if your rights are violated. It is crucially one of the reasons why the ACLU was an early defender of freedom of speech online. I'm so thrilled that the historic Supreme Court decision goes down in history under Reno versus ACLU because the internet has done, you know, it's so popular now to just look at the potential downsides of online speech and taking for granted its enormous equalizing power. Uh, making real freedom of speech a meaningful possibility, even for for people who do not have many resources, including educational resources. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so strongly opposed to increasing censorship online, because that is often the only platform that can be afforded by grassroots and under-resourced individuals and organizations. Yeah, this inequality has almost gotten better, hasn't it, Matt? With the rise of the internet, like the, the argue, this argument has almost lost some of its potency. Yeah, I mean, f- first of all, the argument, as Nadine points out, is completely absurd. Like, yes, it's we have an unequal amount of speech rights in the United States, so what eliminate them? Like that doesn't make any. It's absurd to begin with. But I, I hear this very f- frequently from people saying. We don't really have true free speech in America because people who have massive platforms who own networks, uh, they have much more power. Uh, Their speech has much more power than people who don't. Um, I I totally disagree with this. I mean, my views on speech were very much shaped by living for uh, over a decade in the Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union, where I I met reporters. Uh, who were literally barred from writing whatever they wanted for, uh, uh, when they when they worked in the uh, under the Soviet Union? And then I met people in the in the Yeltsin period who risked getting shot every time they wrote anything, uh, and that was a real risk that people had to take. And that's very different from what we experience. And we, I think, as Americans, take for granted what what a beautiful and powerful thing speech rights are like they're so cherished by people who live in societies like Russia where they where they know it can disappear in a heartbeat and the difference between um having the right to even toil in private uh with no expected audience and not have that right is enormous i mean uh, you know the russians point out a lot 
this, uh, you know, back in the day, the, the author, Mikhail Bulgakov, well, he couldn't get published, but he sat in his room and he wrote The Master and Margarita, a book that changed the whole world. You know, it was many decades later, but it actually happened. Um, it, you, having that right, uh, and everybody has it, but having, it's so, it's such an important thing and we just don't value it in this country. We don't, we don't value, uh, and, and think about, um, what an extraordinarily powerful thing we all have. Um, and, and that's very d- disappointing. Can I just come in here to say something? You know, one of the things that was really bothering me about this NPR conversation is how the idea of what is a right is only framed around the speaker's right. So much of censoring of free free speech or censoring of speech is also about the disservice you do to the hearer's right. I have every goddamn right to hear anything, no matter how controversial it is. If it is being said, I have a right to it. And then I am a free agent. I do with that what I want to do. But I think the conversation gets a little bit lopsided if we only think about the right of a person to speak. It's also the right of people to listen. And this is where I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding of Mill in this program and Mill was being critiqued. And there were several misunderstandings of Mill, but this was one of them. It's not about the right of the speaker. That's actually the less important right. It's about the right of people to listen to a point of view and precisely the right to listen to a point of view that is contrary to theirs. Yeah, we just posted on Twitter at FIRE uh, the Frederick Douglass quote, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. And, you know, Matt's talking about the Soviet Union. When I was in college, a video that me and my friends like to share um, was the singer, because of the censorship of music in the Soviet Union, he would just go, But it was just like this absurd music that just because you couldn't get any lyrics past the censors, they had to sing it this way. Um, we enjoy a lot better music today, although we could we could argue about that, I guess. <laughs> uh, I know, you made the point about John Stuart Mill. That's actually my next clip. So let's let's play that right now. This is from John Powell, who's the uh, Berkeley professor. The speech absolutists try to say you can't regulate speech. Berkeley law professor John Powell. Why? Well, because it would harm the speaker. It would somehow truncate their expression and their self-determination. And say, okay, what's the harm? The harm is a psychological harm. Wait a minute. I thought you said psychological harms did not count. Make a choice. They don't count or they do count. It can't count for the speaker, but not the listener. Honest, I don't follow. But you know, I've never argued that the reason we don't censor is because it to censor would create some sort of psychological harm, but maybe there are free speech advocates who make that sort of argument. I think in fairness to John Powell, um, whom I know and, and like and admire, uh, he is adverting to one of the multiple rationales for free speech. We've already talked about the marketplace of ideas, and he's referring to the idea of self-determination or autonomy, freedom of the individual to express himself or herself. Well, there are, there are many problems with John's argument. Respect John as I do. I disagree with his argument strongly. Um, one of them is that there are so many 
additional rationales for freedom of speech. Amna referred to one, the right of the audience to choose what it's going to hear or not hear. And that plays into an incredibly important rationale in our democratic republic, which is where we, the people, wield sovereign power. How can we possibly do that in an informed and meaningful way if we don't have access to the most robust exchange of ideas? The Supreme Court put this very well when it said that speech about public affairs is more than a matter of self-expression. It is the essence of self-government. So I think John is really trivializing the importance of free speech by reducing it only to the psychological interest of the, of the speaker. Um, it's also true that there are certain kinds of psychic harm that certain kinds of speech cause, which our law does allow to be punished. So we do allow punishment of targeted bullying and harassment and threats, for example, because of the anxiety and fear that they cause. So, you know, both generalizations are untrue. Number one, that the only damage of censorship is psychic. And number two, that we never allow psychic harm uh, to justify censorship. Equally incorrect. But in, in all fairness, uh, to him, right? I mean, there's a lot of speech that will cause, quote unquote, psychic harm that falls short of the restrictions that the Supreme Court has allowed for, uh, for with regard to censorship, right? I mean, like I, so I made the documentary Mighty Ira and Ben Stern, who survived like nine concentration camps and you know, half a dozen death marches. You know, I, I truly believe that he was devastated that there was, he was psychologically harmed, so to speak, by the prospect of the Nazis with their, you know, Nazis, swastikas and whatnot, marching through his town again. But at the same time, we recognize, or we, we say that and we say, okay, but we live in a free society. We live in a state where we punish every instance of violence, right? while allowing the greatest latitude for speakers to speak. And that's just kind of the cost, recognizing that's just kind of the cost sometimes of living in a free society is that you're going to hear noxious speech. That's why on college campuses, we at FIRE have what we call the strong student model, the idea being that students are not too weak to live in freedom. Now, that model has kind of come under attack in the last seven years where you have students actually arguing, in fact, that they're too weak to live with freedom, but you know, we're old school liberals, right? And we believe that no, you know, the old adage sticks and stones may break my bones, but worlds never harm me. I mean, words do harm. That's not why you have that idiom. You have that idiom to kind of build up people's resilience to what it takes to live in a democratic society. And now I see Amna, you, you're a lot of uh, <laughs> reaction to what I was saying. I, I, it's Again, even even if we take the resilience part out, right, which I'm very much in favor of, I think the whole purpose of education is to empower students. I, I don't like this molly coddling that is now becoming more and more prominent and people are arguing for it, even students are. Anyway, even if we put that aside, I think the way to evaluate it is to think about what will happen if we do this and what are the costs, like, what are the costs of banning the speech? The you have to think it through all the way. Okay, in this one instance, you might be really happy with the outcome that Nazis weren't talking and marching through your town. 
But the same principle is going to apply tomorrow when you have Black Lives Matter protesters. And do you want that? So it's not about if you ban it, there's going to be no other consequences. Think about the consequences of the principle and the precedent that you're laying down. And is that what you want to really be pushing for? So I feel like it's a very truncated vision of what the outcomes will be. It's not fully considering what the kind of opportunity cost is. Yeah, I want to actually play another clip right here because it kind of pairs well with the clip that we just heard. It's about you know psychological harms being indistinguishable from physical harms with regard to their effect on the body. So let's, I have a uh, lot to say there. <laughs> yeah, I know. J- Jonathan Haidt and my boss, Greg Lukianoff, actually wrote a whole Atlantic piece responding to one of these arguments that was made in the New York Times. But let's play this and then we can respond. What we've learned over the last 40 years in the mind science is that many psychological harms from the brain's perspective are almost indistinguishable from what we think of as physical harms. And in fact, the body is not neatly divided. So when you have a psychological shock, you have a physical reaction. All right. So thoughts on that? I mean, can it be simultaneously true and and not justify censorship? Amna, you said you had a lot of thoughts on that. Even in the extreme case where I grant that there is psychological harm, and yes, like we said, there are certain parameters even around that, but even beyond those parameters, if we grant, yes, this kind of harm is real harm and it is taking place. The question is, who is to make that decision? And how do we really lay out the parameters of it? I think in the cases that Nadine was alluding to, like in the cases of harassment, workplace harassment, where that has been laid out, they're very, very strict guidelines to assess what constitutes harm. Now, the trouble with what we're seeing right now is this extreme conflation between offense and harm. And we're seeing this across our society. And that is becoming a reason to shut speech down. That to me is extremely dangerous. I also, you know, I'm no expert in mind science, but it does make me wonder what the methods of this science are. I'm not questioning that it's poorly done. But what I am wondering is, how far are we taking people who are, say, survivors in war zones and testing their brain signals? How does human resilience, the mind is a very flexible plastic thing. Our thresholds change over time. And the trouble is that we tend to latch onto anything that seems to be scientific as the reason to go down. Science itself is highly contested. As a historian of medicine, I would like to say we need to be very, very cautious with this kind of research and wait and see what the results are over at least decades before we jump onto that bandwagon and start using offense as a way of banning and irrational for banning speech. And I think that this one of the other problems with this line of argument is the paternalism and the denial of individual human agency and responsibility. Sticks and stones are distinguishable from uh, words. Sticks and stones, by their mere force, do demonstrably cause harm. Words can only cause harm through the intermediating process of the human mind. And that, and I have read a lot of scientists of, and social scientists of all kinds, and, the, and, and our own experience shows to us 
that it, you cannot predict, you know, in a simplistic monkey see, monkey do uh, reaction that a particular word or expression is necessarily going to have a certain impact. It depends on myriad factors uh, about the individual, about the speaker, about the context, about the history. Yes, it's true. It, it, it is false that words never hurt us, but it's equally false that words always hurt us. It depends. And we should focus where there is no way we can protect or would want to protect everybody from all speech that is traumatizing and upsetting. I have friends who were deeply traumatized every time Donald Trump opened his mouth to give a speech. I have other friends who are traumatized by, you know, Elizabeth Warren opening her mouth. There is a lot of political speech that is deeply upsetting. Uh, is that, and I'm sure brain scientists could show some, some action in the brain uh, that it has a physical manifestation. That's not a justification for censoring it. It's a justification for doing everything we can as educators and as a society to build up self-confidence, to build up a sense of empowerment, uh, that we do not have to be give words that power over us. Yeah, the, two other points on this. Uh, Nadine, I think the point you make about the mind being an intermediary here and, and can kind of determine how we respond to speech is an important one. I think Shakespeare said, there is no good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Uh, which is, I, I think, would be very important for a lot of us. And it's actually helped me kind of think through some of the problems in my life, but in thinking through some of these free speech questions, especially for those who find offense and are deeply hurt by it. Uh, the other point is, you know, what's the limiting principle here, right? If expression can, can be a form of harm, the idea being that it make it, uh, expression offends you. It stresses you out. It gives you anxiety, and it prolonged exposure to stress and anxiety can have finite physical manifestations. Well, what does that do for the boss then, who's critical of your work? You know, performance over the course of time, stress-inducing, anxiety-reducing. What about the friend who's in a dispute with you because you, you know, allegedly did something wrong? You know, is that a form of expression that produces stress and anxiety over time, which? can have physical manifestations. There are things that happen in our life, right? The slings Somebody and arrows. breaks up with you. Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is, is breaking off a relationship now a form of psychological harm that can manifest itself in physical ways? I, don't, I just talk about slippery slope. They criticized us for the slippery slope argument, but I don't see where it ends. We've got one or two more clips here before we sign off. Uh, I want to turn next to dangerous speech. Could it be that there is what I call dangerous speech, the category here of language that does something to people such that it's at least a precursor, if not also a prerequisite for mass intergroup violence. Dangerous speech, a new category, prohibited speech, uh, or just the same, uh, the same sort of arguments for censorship with a new label. Here I have to come to the defense of Susan Benish and her Dangerous Speech Project, both of which I'm very familiar with, and I think were kind of misleadingly portrayed um, in this segment because it does create the implication that there is uh, a new category of speech that's going to be targeted for censorship. Uh, in fact, if you do listen carefully to what Susan said, particularly toward the end of the NPR episode, um, she is very strongly ad advocating 
counter speech and education. And she said, although she's worried by a lot of dangerous speech that's going on, she's very encouraged by how many people are raising their own voices to respond to it. And that is actually the methodology that, that her project is, is advocating. Yeah, I, I did. I did. You're right, Nadine. When you listen to the full episode in context, it, she doesn't seem to be arguing so much in favor of censorship or at least suggesting uh, censorship in the same way that maybe some of the other guests do. I want to close now uh, with the question of the Enlightenment. Part of what he thought was broken about the Enlightenment framework was that you can't just throw more speech into the mix. If mm-hmm. the if the conversational framework is broken, you can't just compete with more and more noise. You have to change the framework itself. And it is a it's a chicken and egg thing, I should acknowledge. You know, in order to change the society, you have to change the vocabulary. In order to change the vocabulary, you have to change the society. Yeah, the thing he's leaving out there is in order to change the society, you need speech, right? How do you change the vocabulary in particular without it? Yeah, it's um I'm I want you to speak to this because you actually addressed I guess some of the concerns related to the Enlightenment. You know, the, the Enlightenment gets a bad rap these days, despite um, Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. Uh, you know, it's the framework for a lot of the systems that we have here in America, but it comes under critique because a lot of the Enlightenment treatises were written by old dead white men, right? Which, who aren't in fashion. Uh, and you did, you have a great new podcast called Banished, I believe is the name of it. And you kind of took on the question is whether the canon, these great books, some of which reside, uh, within these, the, these, uh, enlightenment treaties, uh, are still valid in today's increasingly skeptical society. Right. So this conversation is going slightly on a different track, but I'm happy to go there. And one of my points is that what we consider as texts produced by old dead white men are actually the product. If you have a historical lens and look at the influences that are, forming the basis of those texts, they're not coming from European societies as we think of them and from white people. So much of what we think about as the cradle of knowledge that formed Enlightenment ideas was coming from an interaction with North Africa, was coming from an interaction from ideas around the Mediterranean. Many of the people who were writing about these things were Arabic writers and were people who were black. So to think about the Enlightenment, this really gets my goat as something that is Western or white only is doing such a huge disservice to the rest of the world. There are certain things which are values which I would contend are universal and I would say are born out of strong debate and discussion between different cultures, between different societies, and we've come to them for a reason. There is a reason why the canon is a canon. You know, I'm all in favor of expanding it, or I'm all in favor of like looking at the Enlightenment and learning from it and expanding concepts, but to, to reject it purely because it is seen as white or male is really, really just very myopic in terms of how we see the origins of these ideas. So I really resent this notion that ideas of equality are somehow only Western, as if the rest of the societies that we are born in are all for inequality. You know, this is the kind of thinking that promotes the kind of foreign policy action that we've seen go wrong very badly um, over the last few years. So I would say 
the Enlightenment has a lot to teach us. We can critique it. There's plenty. It's, it's a dialogue to think of these things as fixed in time, space, and you know, associated with particular genders is very problematic. It's not truly reflective of the rich history and the rich conversation that has gone into informing them. So someone like Mill and what he has to say on liberty is actually something that speaks to a lot of values across the world, across races, across societies, and is something to be cherished, not just rejected out of hand because Mill wrote it. Yeah, and points well taken there. Um, you know, it's not the argument that Morantz is making, but it's a you know this critique of the Enlightenment. I'm just seeing it more and more often, and often it falls under the banner of this is like an old dead ideology which has no place in our modern societies. But the point that Morantz is making, and he's quoting the philosopher Richard Rorty, there is essentially that you know the marketplace of ideas, and we've kind of already addressed this. You know comes from Enlightenment values and the presumption that good ideas are going to win out over the arc of history cannot just be presumed. There's such a, there's such a strange logic at play here, which is, I think essentially what they're saying is, well, the Enlightenment is imperfect and the people who were responsible for a lot of those ideas were in some cases not very good people or very imperfect people. So let's throw it all out uh, because... Uh, clearly, it's it's infected or flawed somehow, uh, and because it comes from that that imperfect place, we have to start over with with new ideas, which is a very strange way of looking at things. It, it makes no sense. That's not the way human beings have operated. They've always looked back for lessons from history, and especially in the case of of the United States, you know, the the, the founders were very aware of the idea that the system of government that they created was was likely to not be a finished product. They created an elastic clause for a reason, and speech was an, a, 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 you know, a crucial part of what they, I think, understood to be the, a future curative process for whatever ailed the original model. Um, and so the idea that we have to throw it away uh, in order to fix something, it's it's taking two steps backward to maybe go one step forward. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't I don't understand what that think where that thinking really leads to. I I, I agree with that, and I thought it was also illogical that um, the featured speakers on this uh, on the media segment were saying we have to be humble. We need humility. But to me, that's the essence of defending free speech is saying, you know, I don't trust myself or anybody else to be the sole repository of truth. It's important to listen, especially to those who are challenging me to rethink my ideas. Isn't that the essence? And isn't it the essence of arrogance to say, we do know better. We're going to protect everybody else against these bad ideas. Yeah. It's the idea that I, I think I'm always right, but I don't always think I'm right. All right. Got that opposite. Um, I heard that in a speech one time. I really like that. But Matt, to your point, you know, about we can throw these enlightenment values out the door because the, you know, the people who wrote them were flawed and, and this or that way. I mean, um, what was it? Mill worked for like the East India Trading Company or something, and he was, you know, an imperialist to the nth degree. Um, but, you know, Frederick Douglass's whole enterprise, right, was built on the idea that the values in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they were a promissory note to which, you know, the early founders, they themselves could not live up to, right? So I, I think as we kind of venture to live in this 
greater identitarian society, we're throwing out good ideas based on the identity of those coming up with them. And sometimes those ideas maybe need to go out the door, right? But there's a reason that some of the early founders wrote their treatises like Common Sense and the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers under pseudonyms, right? Because they wanted to remove those identitarian arguments from the actual debate of the substantive issues, uh, which I think you know, some of these conversations surrounding the Enlightenment can benefit from. Just quickly to interrupt, I mean, I, even your own movie, Mighty Ira, I thought addressed this when it talked about how you know, Dr. King's, if I remember correctly, Dr. One of Dr. King's central points was that we want to make the, the declaration of independence live up to its promise to all of us. Right. Uh, and it, it, his critique was not, let's throw that out. Let's, uh, the critique was let's now make it functional, uh, in a way that it was designed to be for everybody. Uh, let's make those promises real. And I think, that's that it's two fundamentally different ways of looking at that history. One is that it was flawed from the beginning and let's throw it out. The other is it was flawed from the beginning, but let's fix it. Let's, let's, let's get, get together and make it right. And, um, you know, I'm obviously on the, on the side of, of, of the latter strategy. Yeah. I mean that, that, that speech that you're referring to the, uh, from Martin Luther King and Aaron, if you could cut in some of the audio for me, he says somewhere I read of freedom of speech, somewhere I read of freedom of press, somewhere I read, you know, that, uh, we have the right to assemble and petition the government essentially for the redress of grievances, um, was the last speech that Martin Luther King made the night before he was assassinated in Memphis. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So it's, it's a great point, and I had forgot about that. It ties in perfectly with the discussion we're having here. And actually, a portion of that speech, just like a split second of it, comes in the intro of this show. Can I just say that we are living in times where I find that there is this knee-jerk response. If you, if you find any kind of contradiction, you just cancel the person, or you censor it, right? Or you reject it, demean it. And the idea of certain, certain values such as the value of free speech. I mean, these are aspirational values and they're worth aspiring to. The notion that we can actually live in a society where that's no longer an aspiration and everything is perfect is bizarre to me. Anyone who knows anything about human nature knows that we are tempted to listen to things we like and shut down things we don't like, which is why you need very strong principles that protect 
the right of those who you don't agree with to be heard. Otherwise, we'd all be stuck in our own silos, which is frankly what we're doing on Twitter right now, unless you're making a concerted effort. So we're not moving towards that utopian society that these people are imagining. To the contrary, we are moving towards these silos where we're all just talking to each other and creating these echo chambers. And the point is, we're never going to be in a perfect society. I love the way people talk about how you know, on college campuses these days, we're going to eradicate racism. And I just think, well, that is a very lofty aspirational goal. But anyone who thinks that is truly 100% possible is deluding themselves because these things morph and transform over time and end up in other ways. So these are great goals to aspire to. We should aspire to them. But just because we can't live up to them at any given point in time doesn't denigrate the goal itself. And the aspiration to protect free speech and the aspiration to eradicate racism are absolutely mutually reinforcing. One of the ways that I strongly disagreed with a lot of points that my friend John Powell made uh, was he, he said a number of times, you have to choose between the 14th Amendment and his promise of equal protection of laws and the First Amendment. I could not disagree more. The only reason why Dr. King and the civil rights movement uh, were able to, uh, to make progress on civil rights and to actually put teeth into the 14th Amendment was because the United States Supreme Court started in that historical context, to put real teeth into the First Amendment. King and other civil rights activists were censored over and over and over again, doing damage not only to free speech, but also to the cause of equal justice. I think that's a great point to leave it on. I realize I've kept you a little bit longer than... uh... Than I had promised. This has been a fascinating conversation. So Nadine, Matt, Amna, I appreciate you for coming on the show. And uh, I hope to have you all on at some point in the future. Thank you, Nico. Thank it was you. Wonderful. Nice to meet you both. All three you of you, too. actually. Yeah. <laughs> that was Matt Taibbi, Nadine Strawson, and Amna Halid. Responding to an August 27th radio segment from WNYC's On the Media, the segment was called Constitutionally Speaking, and it will be linked in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen to the full episode. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. If you have email feedback, anything we got wrong, anything we got right, Please send it to so to speak at thefire.org. We also take reviews, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube as well. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>